Uh, <clears throat> we are jumping into a series this weekend uh, that's very similar to that. We're talking about the book of James. If you've ever read the book of James, you know James does not leave a lot of room for the flesh. This series is called Dead or Alive, and if you've read through that book before, you know why it's called Dead or Alive. Um, we're going to be taking over the next five weeks, we're going to be kind of walking through each chapter, each of the five chapters of James. And I get to, I get to do chapter one today, which I'm really excited about. Uh, this message is called The Good Test. But I'm going to also give just a little bit of an, an introduction for James because this is the first message of the series. Now, James is in the New Testament. Y'all know that? Awesome. You guys are, see, you're my 909 people. You guys are my Bible readers, my get up in the morning and prayers. You guys, I mean, you guys, y'all, y'all are my people. Sometimes you're a little quiet in church, but I know that you've gotten with the Lord. And I love that about you. I love that about you. Uh, it's in the New Testament. And, and, and what it's considered is a general letter or a universal letter. And what that means is just a subgenre of the many letters in the New Testament. It's not written to a particular church or a particular city, but it's, it's written to a wide group of people across um, a, a wide territory. Now, scholars generally agree that this James from the book of James is actually not James, one of the twelve. It's not James, it's not James, the brother of John. It's James, the brother of Jesus. Did you guys know that? Some of y'all, some of y'all looking at me like, what? That's a, yeah. So, so the thing is, is that James, the brother of John, he actually was martyred most likely before this was ever even written. But James, the brother of Jesus, he's a really interesting guy. See, he didn't, from what we understand, he didn't actually put his faith in Jesus, his own brother, the savior of the world, who was also his brother. He didn't put his faith in Jesus during Jesus's earthly ministry, but it wasn't until his death and resurrection that he chose to follow him. Now, just put yourself in the shoes of Jesus for a minute. You've got your own brother in the house, and he's not even buying into what you're doing. Now, I'm thankful that he's, you know, God in the, God in the flesh, and so he was, you know, not discouraged by that. But I, I might get a little bit discouraged if my own brother was like, nah, I think we'll wait for another one. But instead, what, ha- what happened in James was so beautiful. It's a beautiful story of redemption because not only did he come to faith in Jesus, but he became the leader of the true church in Jerusalem, the leader of the Jerusalem council, and he was one of the most prominent voices in the early church. It's a really beautiful thing, the way that, that James' whole life was turned around. Now, the general theme of James could be described in several ways. You could put it in your own words, but in my words, I would describe it as such. As the living out of genuine faith through the transformation of one's character and behavior. I'll say that one more time. There's a lot of ways that you could describe it. But the living out of genuine faith through the transformation of one's character and behavior. Now, this letter is popularly known for its focus and its prominence on on good works, which for some of us are like, oh my gosh, it's a cuss word. Did you just say good works? It's actually not a cuss word. See, there's, there's some Christians that because of the emphasis on good works, they want to pit James's theology against Paul's. Because when we see Paul, we see this emphasis of salvation by faith, right? Even Martin Luther, who was a really important early church father, the kind of the father of the Reformation, he called James an epistle of straw and wanted it removed from the Bible. Some of y'all, some of y'all looking at me like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I was ready for this history lesson. Now, I do want to defend Martin Luther for half a second. 
because he was in a pretty unique context in which there had been so many abuses and, and, and so much jacked up stuff that was going on in the Roman Catholic Church. And so he was in this context where anything that had to do with works and earning or anything like that, it was like he was very suspect of it. He's like, look, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace, which is true. But now as we're, as we're able to kind of zoom out all these years later, we can look and see most theologians agree, and I, I would agree with them, that Paul and James are not actually in disagreement. But they are both emphasizing from different angles the very same truth. You see, Paul and James would both agree that it is faith in Christ that saves. But they would also agree that saving faith in Christ must result in something. Faith in Christ changes us. The way Paul would describe it is it would result in the fruit of the Spirit. The way that James would describe it perhaps is it would result in us operating according to the law of liberty. The same truth emphasized in a different way. In the first chapter of James, he gives a sort of table of contents for what he's about to tell us. It's kind of like one of those essays back when you were in high school or middle school. It's like, okay, tell us what you're going to tell us. Tell us the thing and then tell us what you told us. James does a little bit of that in chapter 1. He kind of briefly touches upon several things that he's going to unpack more as, as the book progresses. Some of those include remaining steadfast in the midst of trials and suffering. How to gain godly wisdom. The treatment of the rich and the poor. Humility and pride. Genuine faith being expressed in action. Taming the tongue and rejecting sin and worldliness. However, there is one area in this first chapter that really caught my eye this week because he talks about it right out of the, get, right out of the gate. In verse 2, and then he talks about some other things that he's going to address more deeply later. And then he returns to it in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 12. And it caught my eye and I thought, okay, Lord, is, is this where, is this kind of where you're directing this first chapter of James' study this week? So what we're going to do is we're going to read together from his first mention of this topic, starting in verse 2. And then we're going to pick it back up in verse 12, where he returns to this topic. Now, would you please join me? And standing for the reading of the word. He says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then he talks about a few other subjects and he picks up in verse 12 with the same topic. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You can go ahead and be seated. Do you love God's word? I love God's word. It is the tethering point of my life. Boom. It is, this, it is the pole on the ground. Now, a lot of us, uh, 
I'll speak for myself. I, I, would, I would like it if, if life were easier. Anybody else agree with that? Some of y'all like, no. Oh, no, I like difficulty. <laughs> you know, uh, I, the first thing that comes to mind is just kind of like, is, is work. For those of us who work full-time, whether you're working full-time in the home with children or you're working full-time out in the marketplace, you know, there's, there's this tendency, at least for me, to be able to, to kind of like fantasize, like, what, what if I didn't have to work in order to earn a living? Wow. What if just like a paycheck just kind of hit my bank account every two weeks? Just and I did nothing. And I'm thinking, oh, that would be nice. <laughs> that would be nice. But it extends beyond work, of course. You know, it extends into our thoughts about marriage, kids, and friendships. Like, man, what if my spouse just agreed with me all of the time? <laughs> just think about it for a minute. Those, the married folks out there, just think about that for a minute. Just, just meditate. Just chew on that for a minute. What if my spouse just agreed with me all of the time? Yes, Lord. Or, or parent, all oh, the parents out there. What if your kids just obeyed you without question every single time? No questions, no why, no eh. See, my kid, my kid, my son, he's 10 and a half months old right now, so he's not really like doing the whole like verbal disobedience. But what he can do, you know, he's getting near an electric outlet. Okay, he's getting near that. Now we have covers for it and stuff, but still I'm trying to get him to learn. I'm like, son, no, that's not good for you. That's not safe. And he goes, ne ne. And I go, oh my gosh, I'm beginning to see that little sinful nature bubble up inside of you, son. I didn't teach you to do that. I didn't put that in you. That's homegrown. Or maybe it's with your friendships for all the folks who aren't married, who don't have kids out there. And wouldn't it be nice if all of our friends just had the exact same relational needs that we did? Like they only want to hang out when we want to hang out. They only want to have a phone call when we want to have a phone call. They only want to text back when we want to text back. Wouldn't that be nice if, like, they all had the same exact love language as we did? So we never had to feel guilty. We never had to feel bad about, like, oh, actually, I just don't want to hang out. Look, I love you, but I just, like, I want to be alone. Or maybe it's the opposite. You're, like, super extrovert, and you want to hang out all the time, and the other person's like, please, leave me alone. <laughs> you know, but it also extends beyond human relationship to our relationship with Jesus, like, wouldn't it be so nice? Wouldn't it be better if it was just easy to do the right thing every time? I would like that. Wouldn't it be great if there was nothing on earth that was competing for our attention or our affections so that we could just easily just give ourselves completely to Jesus? What if my relationship with God, oh, what if my relationship with God took no discipline and no sacrifice? Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't life be better would it? I don't think so. You see, history has shown time and time again throughout the millennia that convenience and ease do not produce good fruit in human beings. We may have this vision of ease in our minds that looks like the good life. Like for me, I picture the Shire. All these little hills, all the doors are circular, everyone's getting along, everyone just plants, fruits, and vegetables. No one has disagreements about anything. It's a mirage. It's not real. For those of you who don't like Lord of the Rings, forget that part. Just whatever your good life is. 
See, there's this famous quote, and I don't even think the guy's a believer, but there's this famous quote I heard a few months ago that has stuck with me ever since, resonated with me so deeply because I think its commentary on humanity uh, is so real and proves to be so true over time, and and it's like this. I think it's going to be on the screen. It's by a guy named Michael Hopf, who's kind of a fantasy sci-fi writer or or something like that. It says this, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. I'm going to say that again because you'll be able to see a cycle there. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. See, I think James has something to say about this phenomenon. And so we're going to return what... We're going to return to the scriptures right now, starting in verse 2. I think James has something to say about this truth. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you've ever heard me preach before, you can probably guess where I'm headed next. Now it's time for the original language. Yay. I like it. It's, it's my favorite thing to do when I'm reading the Bible personally. But there's a reason for it. It's not just so that we can like feel all like uppity and intellectual with ourselves. It's because there's more meaning to the words than what we see in English. If you've ever studied a foreign language, like how many of you, are, uh, you have a second language that you speak other than English? Wow, we in North Idaho. <laughs> They're like, do you mean American? Actually, it's from another country, but nevertheless, if you've ever learned to speak another language, you can see that a lot of times things don't translate perfectly. It doesn't mean that the translation is wrong. It just means there's more meaning behind it that we can communicate in the language that it wasn't originally written in. Does that make sense? That's the reason why we do it. It's not so we can put up our nose and be like, I know the Greek. So what does James mean by joy? Joy is one of my favorite words. Joy and rejoice are some of my favorite words in the Greek and the Greek language. Do you know why? Because when you look at the literal meaning, what the root of the word joy is, the, the word is kara, and it literally means to lean toward or recognize or be glad for grace. And in a Christian context, it specifically means to be glad for or lean toward or recognize the grace of God. So just, let's just think about that for a minute in the context of this verse. we got to move on. We'll return to it. See, the trial in this verse, the word trial, is pyrosmos, which can either be, listen closely, this is super important, it can either mean in more of a positive sense a test or a trial, or in more of a negative sense it can mean temptation. But it's the same word. And the way that it is translated differently is based on the context that you find it. Now, in this particular context, in this verse, it proves to mean trial or test, partly because of what the rest of the phrase says. It uses this word for testing later in the verse, which is dakinion, approving of genuineness. Approving of genuineness. Remember that as well. Now, the steadfastness is a word that you may recognize because we say it a lot at Heart of the City Church. Usually, we translate it as endurance here because that is one of the legitimate interpretations or or translations of this word, and it is hupomone. You probably have heard J.O. preach on hupomone before. 
If we let this steadfast or endurance have its full effect, James says it's ergon teleon, or it's complete work, then we will be made teleoi, which is perfect or complete, and holocleroi, which is complete or whole, lacking nothing. Now, why would I translate those words? Because when we look at all this together, together, we get this sense that James is telling us that we should be aware of the grace of God in the midst of the testing in our lives, see God's grace in the midst of the testing that is meant to prove our genuineness and that its purpose is to produce steadfastness or endurance in us that will bring us to a state of completion and wholeness as human beings. That sounds pretty good to me, wouldn't you say? Now, these scriptures show, show us that the, the, the picture of testing that we get here is not one where God uses a test because he doubts us or he wants us to see how wretched we are, but instead because he knows that as he uses a test in our lives, it forms us into the full and complete version of ourselves that he has in mind. It's not like a test at college where it's like, hey, you got to take this test to see if you've been listening we got to take this test to see if you gathered any of this. It's no, and, and now even as I look at college, I can see even the deeper meaning or the deeper purpose of the test that I took in school. I was being formed so that I might actually be prepared to go and do something after school. After addressing the topics of wisdom, riches, and humility for a few scriptures, James returns to this topic in verse 12 and says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, I want to look at this verse in light of what he has already said in verses 2 through 4. When we endure and remain steadfast in the midst of trials and testing, we already know that it brings us to a state of completion and wholeness. That's already good news. It brings us to a state of completion and wholeness. But James adds to it here. In addition, he says that we will receive the crown of life, of gift that God has promised to all those who love him. As we endure the tests of life, we are made complete and our reward is true life, eternal and everlasting. Another way to think about it, testing prepares us for eternity. Testing prepares us for eternity. In verse 13, we see a very stark change of tone. James, James goes a, 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 what appears to be a different direction. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, in English, it seems very plain to us. We have testing and trials over here that are used by God for our good, but temptation is not good, and God is not into doing that, right? But what we can't see when we're reading it in English, which I already briefly touched upon earlier, is that this word, these two words are only separated by context. It is the same Greek word. Now, testing and tempting are already similar ideas in English, even the way they sound and the way they are defined. They are even more similar in Greek. The same word, only differentiated by context. 
How interesting. See, God uses the tests in our lives so that we may have endurance and be complete and receive life. But he does not tempt us. He does not tempt us. We are tempted, it says, by our own desire, which leads to sin, which leads to death. James finishes this section. I love this. I love this part. It's just, it's so beautiful. I don't know. Gosh, I just love it. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. Now, why is this last part? Why, why would I even include this? What does it have to do with the previous section? Well, because God gives good things. The temptations that come from our desires and give birth to sin are not from God. They are not. But many of the tests that come to produce endurance that results in wholeness in us are either initiated or sometimes not always initiated, but at least used by God to form us and shape us. Testing, look, there's kind of this line, this journey that each of these, each of these words or ideas have. There's a journey for testing and there's a journey for tempting. Let me lay it out for you. Testing, endurance, or, or you could say steadfastness, completeness, wholeness, and life. Temptation, sin, death. So let me ask you, are you being tempted? Or are you being tested? Is the situation that you are facing the devil trying to destroy you or God working to form you? Those are two different things. Have you considered that difficulty, I'm not saying every difficulty, but have you considered that some of the difficulty in your life might actually be meant to produce good fruit in you? Do you count it all joy or recognize God's grace in the trial that you, or test that you are facing? Are you able to step back and count it all joy? Are you able to step back and recognize and lean toward the grace of God in the midst of the test? You might be thinking, well, Seth, how do I tell the difference between a test and a temptation? Wow, that's hard. Because sometimes they feel really, really similar. And, and let me be clear, not all of the challenges that we face in life are so cut and dry. It's not like you can perfectly categorize every challenge that we face in life as, oh, this is just, this is just a test or this is just temptation. And it's not to say that every test has been sent or initiated by God. But just because he didn't send it doesn't mean that he can't use it. See, we have to leave room for mystery in this. We have to leave some room for mystery. Anytime that we don't leave room for mystery when we're talking about God, we're talking above our pay grade. We're a little beyond our depth when we don't leave mystery for God. I have one of my favorite teachers, he said, you are in just as much need for mystery as you are of revelation. However, when we look at what James says about the results of testing versus the results of temptation, we can gather some clues to help us differentiate. These can be helpful tools. Even in the midst of the mystery, these tools can be helpful for us as we're approaching some of these challenges. 
We might want to ask ourselves these questions. Is the challenge that you are facing stretching you or forcing you to lean into him? Is it forcing you to grow or mature in part of your life? Or is the challenge that you are facing leading you into sin? That is leading you away from from his heart, from his will, from his word. But on the other hand, is it driving you to the end of your own efforts and into God's grace? These are important questions to ask because the Bible says that we are to watch and pray that we might not enter temptation. We don't want to be in temptation. But it says that we should count it all joy when we are tested. Those are two different instructions. We know that testing produces steadfastness. And that we are to let steadfastness have its complete work in us. Which is our, whole, our wholeness, our completeness, and life. You stand with me. If what, this, is a, this is the question I kind of want to leave you with today. Something for you to chew on this week. And that is this. If what you are facing is a test, if, I'm not saying that it is, because I don't know your situation, but there is a possibility that what you are facing is a trial or a test. Could it be that God knows that this test is working together for your good? Could it be? I'm just pulling right from Scripture right there. <laughs> so, so if you're like, no, then I'd be like, well. <laughs> because it definitely could be. That God is using this test and working this test together for your good. Could it even be? This is a little bit, this is a little bit, this might, this might hit, hit the little, do a little bit of them. Could it be that it is a gift? Look. I'm not saying that every challenge that you're facing, don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying every challenge that you're facing is a gift, but could it be that the challenge is a test? And if it is a test, could it be that it is a gift? And if it is a gift, could it be that it's a good and perfect gift? Handcrafted just for you from the Father of Lights. Could it be? I don't have the perfect answers and it does, not everything fits into perfect cookie, cookie cutty, cutters here. Wow, that was challenging to say. <laughs> but it's at least, at least worth pursuing and looking at what James has told us. Could I be facing temptation? Well, then I should be watchful and pray that I do not enter into it. Could I be facing a test? Well, then I should recognize the grace of God and, and see him forming me. And yes, there is a place for mystery. And sometimes we are dwelling in mystery. But he's there too. He doesn't leave you alone in the mystery. He says, you may not understand, but I'm right next to you. You may not understand, but I'm inside you. I've made my home with you in the midst of the mystery. So I want to pray for you. Before I pray for you, I do, I do want to say, if anyone, if you made a decision to commit your life to Jesus today, please don't leave here today without going and seeing the, that wonderful couple over there, the Lowry's. They want to pray with you and give you a Bible, and they want to talk to you about next steps in this journey because we make these commitments individually in a moment. But how many of you know, if you've been walking with Jesus for, you, for a while, you know it's a journey.
and you know that on that journey, we need a family. Amen? But I want to pray for all of you today in this, in this regard because I know that a lot of us, all of us, are facing challenges in our lives. And maybe for some of us, God is wanting to help us understand what kind of challenges those are. And for many of us, he is, he is forming us. Would you just consider the possibility that the challenge that you are facing is in order for you to have endurance and for you to be made whole? How many of you want to be whole? I want to be whole. Goodness gracious, I want to be whole. So, Lord, I lift up every person here, including myself. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring clarity to us during this season of whether we are perhaps facing a temptation that we need to be watchful and pray that we might not enter into it. Or perhaps we are in the midst of a test or trial in which we need to recognize your grace in the midst of it. Or we are sitting in a place of mystery where we need to dwell with you and trust in you and lean into you even in the midst of not understanding. But for each one, God, I pray that this week as we go out from this place, that we would have a deeper understanding and recognition of what it is, the good work that you are doing in our lives because you are doing a good work. You are forming us and shaping us that we might mature into the fullness of the stature of Christ, as you say in Ephesians chapter four. And we pray for that. We welcome that. We say, yes, Lord. Would you mature us into the fullness of the stature of Christ? We welcome that. I bless each one here as they go, Lord, with a deep, rich understanding of what you're doing in our lives and how you are making us whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Church.